the boast that you have, the boast that motivates you, it cannot come through who you are or what you do. Because if your boast in life, second point, comes through who you are or what you do, it becomes inherently divisive to the human race. Welcome to Tell Podcasts. You're listening to encouraging words from Pastor James, bringing you truth and peace through God's word. In this episode, we talk about boasting, meaning speaking with great pride or telling others how great we are. Think, evaluate, learn, lead. T-E-L-L. Tell. Now here's Pastor James showing us what the Bible says is the boast of the gospel. Thanks for listening. We're looking at Romans chapter 4. So the teaching uh, on which tonight's, uh, the, the section of scripture on which tonight's teaching is based comes from Romans 4 verses 1 through 8. Uh, just right before where Jack was reading earlier. And here we read from the Apostle Paul to the Romans, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and that was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is credited as righteousness. David says, King David says, the exact same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them, he says. This is God's word. Uh, I want to start tonight just by taking a moment to think about this idea of applause. When in life are the occasions for applause? An applause is granting a verdict of approval and delight. It's granting a verdict of acceptance and appreciation. And it makes us feel good to be received and to be accepted outside of us. Now, what I want you to think about next is not so much giving applause and what we applaud and when we applaud, but what it feels like to get applause. And I would actually go so far as to say everybody I know likes getting applauded, but I could take it one step further and I think everybody to some extent is living for an applause. And we kind of need applause. And that's sort of what drives us in life, getting to the thing that we think will make us acceptable and lovable and worthwhile, that'll give us our identity in life. The Apostle Paul refers to that in our lesson tonight as he says, that's our boast. Now, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot, you know, when it comes to applauding in worship or other places. The Bible gives very little guideline or mandate when it comes to clapping. So all I would say in a worship context or, or wherever else is be thoughtful about it, be encouraging about it, use it to build up, um, you know, all that stuff. The Bible doesn't say a lot about clapping or applause. The Bible says a ton about boasting. Uh, throughout Paul's letter to the Romans, throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in other spots like his letter to the Galatians, he's constantly talking about, be careful what your boast 
in life functionally is. And that's what I want to unpack here tonight. We're going to use these three points. We're going to look at a background to boasting, what it is, why we do it, why all humans kind of need to do it. We're going to look at the bane of boasting or the problem attached to boasting, why boasting can become divisive thing amongst humanity. In fact, I would say most disagreements in life come because of one person's boasting against another. And thirdly, we're going to look at, for Christians, the real cause for applause. What would, it, what would be the one thing in life that if everybody boasted about this, humanity would be better, not more divided? We'd be more together, not more uh, separated. Okay? Background to boasting, bane of boasting, cause for applause. First of all, background to boasting. Um, Last week, I didn't really touch on it uh, when we were going through Romans 3 because I knew we were going to get to it this week, but last week in verse 27 of Romans 3, the Apostle Paul said, where then is boasting? It is excluded because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Now for three chapters, what he did is he says, God does not love you, accept you, and bless you because of your moral performance, because of your obedience, because of all the great things that you've accomplished in life, or because of your pedigree as most, most of them being Jewish people. He doesn't love you or bless you or accept you for any of those reasons. He does it simply because of his goodness, not your goodness. Now if it's because of his goodness, you don't have any reason for your own performance to boast. That makes zero sense. The one thing that's important, a positive verdict from God comes not from your goodness, but from his goodness. Therefore, if you're going to boast, boast in Christ alone. Now he picks it up here in verse two of chapter four and he says, look at your heroes. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, somebody as great as you think of as Abraham, if he was justified by works, then yeah, he has something to boast about. And he goes on to say, but he wasn't justified by his works. He was justified by faith. So what the Apostle Paul is doing in this chapter is he's contrasting worldly boasting with saving faith. Now what does that mean? What is worldly boasting? Um, One of the commentators I read this past week, he made a connection that I I wouldn't have made myself, but I thought it was helpful. He said, uh, there's clearly a, a link between ancient warfare and what he would call ritualistic boasting. So in other words, his point was, in the ancient world, if you were going to psych soldiers up for battle and get them to charge into a fight, knowing full well that there's a good chance I might die, how do you get them to run that way and not that way? What do you say to motivate them and rally them to action? And this guy's answer was, it's a ritualistic boast. So for instance, you've seen some of these before. Uh, In the movie 300, there's this guy, King Leonidas, right? who is rallying his soldiers. He's got 300 soldiers and he's going against an army of Xerxes, the Persian army, which has like 300,000 300, soldiers. On paper, this is, they don't stand a chance. And yet he says, we can do this. And specifically, some of you might remember the line, it's kind of a famous movie line. He says, this is where we fight, this is where they die. In other words, because we want it more, because we have more heart, There's something about us that is on a greater mission and we're better. And even against the odds and against what's on paper, he can rally those guys to go into the battle and win. Um, In our own American history, we have, there's certain boasts like this. Patrick Henry famously said to get us in the, give me liberty or give me death. 
What he's saying there is I would rather be dead than be subject to another man's rule. And therefore, because I have a higher cause, I think there's good chance of winning. Because I'm fighting on the side of freedom and autonomy and liberty, I think that is my boast for why I will win and why we will win. Uh, The first one that actually came to my mind when I thought about this was He-Man which tells you, when I give you three historical examples, and one of them is from a movie and one of them's from a cartoon, you know how good of a historian I I probably am. But He-Man, when he is rallying himself to get into battle, you know what he says? He holds his sword up and he says, by the power of Grayskull, and he gets the lightning bolt that shoots down and like strikes him, and he says, I have the power, and then that gets him into battle and transforms and, uh, you know, he has to psych himself up. And what he's saying, I have the power of Grayskull, what He's like, he's saying, I have some divine supernatural power on my side. I can win this battle that I'm about to go into because there's supernatural forces working on my behalf. And those supernatural forces, that is his boast. So what is boasting? Boasting seems to be a statement of purpose, a statement of identity, a statement of why I think things are going to turn out favorably on my behalf. And everybody's got something like that. Uh, By the way, in modern sports, athletes do this all the time. In the two weeks that lead up to the Super Bowl, what invariably happens is you you put enough microphones in front of enough athletes, and what they end up doing for two weeks is they say, we are going to completely shut down that opposing team's star player. And what that becomes is they call it bulletin board fodder. They take the quote, they take the clip from the news, they put it up in the opposing team's bulletin board, and that motivates them because at that point, their boast is contradictory to my boast and our boast and that it becomes less about winning. It becomes more about humiliating our opponent and therefore, I mean, you start to see even in that why boasting is sometimes incredibly unhealthy. God talks about boasting in the Bible repeatedly. In the Old Testament, uh, one of the more famous boasts is when a guy, a giant by the name of Goliath, goes out before the Israelites and he's challenging them to a fight and every day in the morning he goes out and he says, you know, I'm bigger than you, I'm stronger than you, you guys don't stand a chance and your God doesn't stand a chance against me. Look how great I am on the surface. My favorite boast in the Old Testament, however, is something where God tells the Israelites not to boast. And he's speaking to one of the judges. His name is Gideon. Some of you might know this story. It's amazing. Uh, in Judges 7, God, the Lord says to Gideon, You're going into battle against your enemies, the Midianites, but you've got too many men. Not you have too few men. Your army's too too small. He says, no, 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 your army's way too big. And he says, I cannot deliver Midian into your hands or else Israel would boast against me. And they would say, my own strength has saved me. Do you know what he's saying? This is incredible. He says, if you guys are too big, too strong, and too talented, and you go into war, and you're going to win that war, you're going to buy into your own hype, and you're going to think that you won because of your hard work and all of your talent. And so he says, I want your army smaller. And he whittles them down. And he whittles them down from 32,000 soldiers down to 10,000 soldiers. And then he says, that's still way too many soldiers. I need, I need a smaller force than that. You know what he has them do? He has Gideon have them go and get a drink drink from a nearby water, a nearby river. And he says, look, some of the guys are going to drink like this and some of the guys are going to drink like that. Some of the guys are going to get down on a knee and they're going to cup the water up and they're going to get a drink like this. And because they're good soldiers, they're going to be on the lookout and they're going to be looking around, waiting for an attack to come. 
Other guys who are kind of, maybe they're bozos or maybe they're just not good fighters or maybe they just have a ton of trust in God, but they're going to get down on their stomachs and they're going to lap up the water out of the river uh, without any awareness of what's going on around them. So they're super vulnerable and somebody could come and attack them and take them down right there. Those are the guys that I want. The, the 300 guys who get down on their chests and have no, are, are totally willing to be vulnerable and totally believe that God is just going to protect us no matter what. Those are the guys I want you to take into battle. And sure enough, they win. Spiritually speaking, God is saying the worst thing that could happen to my people, the worst thing that could happen to the Israelites was if they start to think that the blessings that come in their life are primarily the result of their own hard work and their own talent and their own wisdom that would be spiritually a disaster for them. In fact, maybe the, the quintessential passage in scripture on this might come from Jeremiah chapter nine, where God says, let not the wise person boast in his wisdom or the strong person boast in their strength or the rich person boast in their riches. Did you see that? Whatever you've been blessed with, don't you dare boast in that and think that defines you. And that's so interesting because what the world is constantly telling you is don't let your mistakes define you. And that's actually good advice. Your mistakes don't define you. Your failures don't define you. What the world would say, though, is your talents define you and your accomplishments and your trophies. God says, don't you dare let your trophies define you. Don't let your mistakes define you, but don't let your talents define you because that is going to be spiritual absolute ruin to you. He says, uh, let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth for in these individuals I delight. The Bible is telling us that every single human being naturally boasts in something. You're going to boast in something. What the Bible is also telling us is that inherently the fallen human soul is tempted to boast in anything and everything and anyone first ahead of the goodness of God. Um, and so what the Apostle Paul is doing here in his letter to the Romans in chapter four is he's saying to the, Ro the Jewish Christians in Rome, look, I know you guys think very highly of Abraham. I know you think very highly of David. I know these guys are your heroes and you wanna be just like them. Uh, Abraham, look, he was not saved or blessed because of his good deeds or his good nature or his pedigree. He was saved by grace. And King David, the guy who uh, expanded the empire to its absolute zenith in history, he was not blessed because of his goodness or his lack of sins or his good deeds or anything else. He was saved entirely by grace. What he says about Abraham specifically is Abraham believed God and this was credited to him as righteousness. Now, you know what that... This, he's going back to Genesis 15 and he's going back to a time where God is reiterating to Abraham a promise that he's going to be blessed, that all nations on earth are going to be blessed through him, that he's going to be turned into a great nation. And what the Jewish teachers at uh, Paul's time were saying is, they said, well, Abraham had faith and, and, and God credited him. And they turned that faith into faithfulness. And they were saying, yeah, Abraham might not have done so many good things that he deserved to be blessed by God, but he had such great faith. Look at how huge his faith was. And God was blessing him because he had such great faith. See, they couldn't let go of the fact that God was blessing him not because of anything Abraham did. 
They thought it has to be because of something good about him. They didn't understand grace. The exact same thing is true with David. Why is Paul quoting David here? Uh, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This is from Psalm 32. And you know what David's talking about? He's talking, he's acknowledging the fact that he was guilty of adultery, he was guilty of deceit, he was guilty of murder. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking the two heroes of the Jewish faith who are at the top of the pyramid and he's saying Abraham's not saved by his pedigree or his performance and David is not saved by his pedigree and his performance. And if those two guys that you put on pedestals can't be saved by who they are or what they do, what chance do you have? See? If you're going to be loved, accepted, and blessed, it's going to have to come from outside of you. And so you're saying, okay, I get it. No boasting. I shouldn't be full of myself. That's the lesson. I should be, I shouldn't boast. I should be stoic and self-effacing and have a completely low opinion of myself, right? No, that's not what he's saying either. The Apostle Paul is not saying that you shouldn't need somebody else's praise. We all do. We all do. To accomplish anything in life requires confidence. Everyone needs a boast. Everyone needs an approval. Everybody needs a verdict of acceptance, which in turn generates confidence, and that confidence moves us to take action in life. What he's saying is the boast that you have, the boast that motivates you, it cannot come through who you are or what you do. Because if your boast in life, second point, comes through who you are or what you do, it becomes inherently divisive to the human race. What do I mean? Let's say you boast in something that's a really good quality. I am a really hardworking person. Your boast is, I work so hard. Anybody who ever receives an award, first thing they say, well, thank you, I work very hard at this. Uh, Their boast is how hardworking you are. Well, you say, what's wrong with that? The moment, it's impossible to, to, to boast in being hardworking without to some extent looking down on people who you don't think work quite as hard as you. You start to despise people that you think are maybe just a little bit lazy and aren't as good of workers as you. And if you don't agree with that, if you don't agree that the idea of boasting in a particular attribute or something like that is is a negative and potentially divisive thing, all I'd say is replace the thing like hard work with something like intelligence. We all know if somebody in the room, because in every room, somebody's the smartest, right? And if the person who is the smartest knows that they're the smartest, and the person who's the smartest feels like they're the smartest, do people in the room tend to like that person or not tend to like that person? Does that person tend to be inclusive or divisive on the basis of feeling how smart they are versus everybody else? Why? Because every boast that comes from who I am or what I do is inherently divisive. It pushes the part, the world, it segregates. Any of your personal boasts segregate the world. Uh, By the way, Christians even do this by calling themselves good Christians. If you are a Christian who boasts uh, about how much you go to church and how much you're in Bible study and how generous you are and how much you pray and how much writer your doctrine is than everybody else's, you know what you end up doing? You cannot do that without invariably starting to despise the people that you think are inferior to you. Any worldly boast, I belong to this group, I belong to this family, I belong to this political movement, 
I belong to this nationality, I belong to this ethnicity, I got into this school, it becomes impossible not to villainize and demonize others when your boast is in something that you are or something that you've done. Now, here's the thing. Of course the world is going to boast in worldly performances and worldly things. What else would the world boast in? That's not really our issue you know, as Christian worshipers. Now, sometimes Christians are tempted to boast in the things of this world. Admittedly, sometimes that can be a problem. What I think is even more fascinating as a problem, however, is when Christians boast about things like spiritual performance. And I just wanted you to see how pervasive this actually is. Uh, I was reading a, a book on evangelism recently and, and the guy was commenting on how, uh, so one of the main evangelism strategies in the 20th century was this thing called the evangelism explosion. It's where we got like people who asked the question, if you died tonight, uh, would you get into heaven? Would you end up in heaven? That sort of thing. It comes from, from that material. And one of the things the author was saying is if you change the question just a little bit and ask it, and ask it even to church-going Christians at your own congregation, if you ask the question, assuming there really is a heaven, what do you think are the general requirements to get in? The author said, I guarantee if you ask that question to your church, are you going, what are the requirements to get into heaven? A bunch of people in your own congregation will answer something like this. Well, yes, I'll get into heaven because I tried my best at being a good Christian. Or of course I got into heaven because I believe in God and I try to do his will. Or of course I got into heaven because I believe in God with all my heart. Some of you are saying, what's wrong with those answers? Well, you know what the first one is? I try my best to be a good Christian. That is exactly salvation by works. The second one, I believe in God and I try to do his will. That is salvation by faith plus works. And the third one, the idea that I believe in God with all my heart and that's why I'll end up in heaven. That is salvation by your faith as a work. It's exactly what I was talking about earlier with Abraham. God must have blessed him and accepted him because his faith simply was so big. You're turning your faith not into an organ through which you receive God's goodness, but into a thing that you produce that God is supposed to bless you because of. None of those, they all betray this thing. They all, none of those are what Paul is talking about here when he says the one who does not work at all but trusts in God, that's the one who is righteous before God. All of these things betray the idea that I'm saved to some extent by my own doing and that is a false boast and here's what it does. It hurts me spiritually because I'm plagiarizing credit from God. Every good thing I have is because of God's goodness, not because of my, anything I do or my, even my faith. So it's stealing credit from God. Number two, it's problematic and it hurts me psychologically because it turns my salvation into a performance-based kind of thing, uh, which means you know, if I have enough faith and if I do enough good and if I, and that is some of the reason that some of us are constantly anxious and never feel quite good enough is because we have a performance-based mentality in our approach to God. It hurts us sociologically because if my boast is I have contributed uh, to my own salvation in any way, shape, or form, I've done what other people could not do and that becomes divisive in the world. And the fourth reason why it's so devastating is because it discredits the power of the gospel. The good news that God saves me apart from my goodness entirely due to his goodness. David did not say blessed is the person who avoids most sins. 
He didn't say blessed is the person who does, does a bunch of good or more good than others. He doesn't say blessed is the person who is basically obedient to God. He says blessed is the person who knows that their sins and transgressions are entirely covered by God's goodness, not their own. Which brings me to the final point. If you achieve the thing in life that is your boast, you will become puffed up and full of yourself. And you will look down at everybody else and you will damage the world. And if you fail to get the thing in this world that you want to be your boast, you will kind of hate yourself and loathe yourself and then you might become even more destructive in the world. If you get nothing else out of what I'm saying tonight, boasting is terrible. It is a terrible, terrible, terrible sickness that afflicts all humanity, including Christians. But what if your boast was completely apart from you? What if you could actually be real about yourself? Have you ever talked to somebody before? It's amazing. People who are utterly uh, transparent and fantastically self-aware and brutally honest about their, short, their own shortcomings and yet they're not self-loathing at all. It's really bizarre and it feels like a curtain has dropped and you're seeing and you're hearing reality for the first time. What if everyone actually realized how they came off? What if everybody was actually honest uh, about their shortcomings? What if everybody allowed themselves to feel appropriate remorse because their self-image wasn't based on this idea that I'm a basically good person and therefore anytime I have a flaw, I have to make excuses and defend myself to the world. But they could totally embrace the fact that yes, I am very messed up in a variety of different ways and yet I am entirely okay because I am a righteous sinner. Martin Luther referred to that as simul justus et peccator was the Latin. It means I'm simultaneously justified and a sinner. I'm simultaneously completely right with God, which makes me totally confident. And at the exact same time, I am simultaneously totally sinful, which keeps me totally humble. The gospel is the only thing that can make people simultaneously more confident and more humble. It's the only thing that you can boast in that unifies and does not segregate or separate. And it's exactly, C.S. Lewis wrote about this in a sermon that he preached back in 1941. It was later turned into a book called The, the Weight of Glory. And he says, the most mind-boggling concept on earth is how God can take sinful, flawed, broken people who don't deserve anything. And yet, as we stand before him, those who have received the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ will be loved and accepted and adored by the Father when we get to heaven. He, he puts it like this. He says, it is written, we shall stand before him. We shall please God. Not just he tolerates us, he's pleased in us. It seems impossible it's a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. It means good report with God, acceptance, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we've been knocking all our lives will be open at last. That's the verdict that you've been working so hard towards all your life. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus. How does it happen? Again, Galatians 6 is my favorite spot for this. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, 
May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? Paul is saying any good thing that I've ever had, any good thing that I'll ever get, any good thing that I will ever be comes not through who I am or what I do. It comes through the goodness of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when Jesus was in heaven, he was equal part of the Trinity. He was equal part of the Godhead. And he received nothing but praise from the angels all the time. He had nonstop adoration and adulation. He had everything that every heart wants all the time. Infinite praise, infinite acclaim, infinite approval, infinite love. And he chose to leave all of it. He left all of that praise to come to earth to get what? He didn't just leave the praise. He came to earth and he got mocked and he got ridiculed and he got taunted. Um, he, he deserved to get praised and instead he got booed. And on top of it all, you know, not getting the praise that you deserve is really frustrating. Not getting the praise that you deserve and instead getting criticized and ridiculed, that is a little slice of hell. And on top of that, the worst, the full the full pie of hell that he got was when he got on the cross and the father who had loved, accepted and praised him for all eternity past at that point turns his back on him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is going through hell. Why? He, the Bible makes it very clear. This didn't just happen to him. He voluntarily chose it. Why? So that those of us who have falsely boasted in our lives would by grace through faith receive an eternally gratifying well done, good and faithful servant when we stand before God in the end. Jesus got booed so that we could receive the applause of our Father and all the angels in the end. And if we're honest about that, that's the only thing that is ever worth boasting in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we desperately want acceptance and approval and a verdict of well done. We need that. But we are going to be heartbroken if we try to get it from this world. Help us rest in the righteousness of your son. Help us be honest with the world about who we are, righteous sinners saved by your grace. You alone are worthy of our boast. Help us do that. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks again for listening to Tell Podcasts. Tell's mission is simple, teaching you the real gospel so you can teach others. Remember, truth brings peace. For more about Tell, visit us on Facebook or at tellnetwork.org.